Welcome to This is Type 1, real life type 1 diabetes with your hosts, Colleen and Jesse. I'm Colleen Mitchell, and I've had type 1 diabetes for over 24 years. By day, I'm a process analyst in the power industry, and by night, I'm a writer, podcast host, and accountability coach. I'm passionate about type 1 diabetes education and showing others that this disease doesn't define me. I'm Jesse Tuggy, and I've had type 1 diabetes for about eight years now. I love hiking and painting, and I'm looking forward to working as an engineer after college. My diagnosis has inspired me to take control of my future and learn everything I can about it. Each week on the show, we'll talk about real life with type 1 diabetes, bring on cool people with connections to type 1, and above all, encourage you to understand that this disease doesn't have to hold you back. This isn't medical advice. This is life with type 1. Welcome to episode 55 of This is Type 1, real life type 1 diabetes with your hosts, Colleen and Jesse. Today, I'm talking with Adam Brown current contributor and former senior editor of Diatribe, the online patient-focused publication of the Diatribe Foundation. Diatribe seeks to empower readers with useful, actionable information that gives them hope for a better future and helps them live happier and healthier lives. Diatribe's tagline is making sense of diabetes. A quick reminder for our audience, if you have any questions about type 1 diabetes or about the show, please leave us a comment or send an email to colleen at inspiredforward.com. We'll answer listener questions in future episodes. Jesse is out this week, so I have the win, the fail, and the hack. My win is that I've been having some really stable blood sugars while I go through my elimination diet to find out what foods are impacting my weight loss. While I was interviewing Adam, I had a, several moments where I was thinking that the best blood sugars of my life have been on low carb plus control IQ, and that is no clearer than right now where I'm having one big meal a day and it's just a salad with chicken and some other stuff. But that is really helping with my blood sugars at the moment. The fail this week is the flip side of having such good numbers is that I have lower insulin usage, which means that my infusion sites are lasting longer than three days. And when they reach the end of their life, they go out hard. I spiked relatively badly on day five of a site trying to kind of eke out those last drops of insulin. But I did put less insulin in the next site though. And the hack is intermittent fasting, also known as time-restricted eating, which can be really useful for type 1 diabetics who, one, have weight to lose, two, have good control over their blood sugars, and three, are willing to fast for 16 hours or longer, nighttime included. And this is not exempting any low snacks. So if my blood sugar does go low while I'm intermittent fasting, I will correct it. So without further ado, here is our interview with Adam Brown. Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks for, Thanks for having to come me. on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, so I actually binge read your book, which is Bright Spots and Landmines in less than a day. And when I was done, I immediately thought I need to have you on the podcast. <laughs> okay. Binge reading a diabetes book. That's, uh, that's something. It really resonated with me. And that's something that is just awesome. Wow. Okay. Glad to hear it. So we're just going to start with all of my questions, which is the normal course of business. So give us the rundown of who you are and the role that diabetes plays in your life. Yeah. So um, my name's Adam. I was diagnosed at age 12. That was in 2001. And the tools were kind of terrible back then. It's funny to say that because when I meet with people who've had diabetes, say 50 years, like the tools in 2001 were amazing, <laughs> like home glucose monitoring. But compared to the tools we have now, they were, they were not good. So I was a teenager, like did my best. I'm the oldest of six kids. So responsibility is like kind of my middle name. So I, I took on my diabetes from a, a young age, got on a pump within a year, but kind of 
floated around in the 180s, 200s blood sugars. And we did our best on four finger sticks per day. And it really wasn't until college that a couple turning points happened that I talk about in the book, which is I started taking nutrition classes. And when I was diagnosed, we were told like, oh, you can kind of eat whatever you want as long as you take insulin for it, which a lot of people are still told. And um, that's pretty tough advice to give people in general who don't have a working pancreas, but especially with like with finger stick data. So, so college nutrition classes, I had a roommate who was a bodybuilder who I also went to high school with. And bodybuilders are kind of their own species of human. But one thing about them is they are, at least my roommate, they're super meticulous about measuring things, testing them, seeing the impact, tweaking, adjusting. And so this like self-experimental mentality, I think, kind of started then. And then the last turning point was uh, I started an internship at Diatribe uh, and Close Concerns, which at the time was one organization that wrote about diabetes. And I did that for a summer. I had a really great time. And I was at a conference in Colorado where I heard about CGM for the first time. And that was in 2010. Back then, it was the Dexcom 7 Plus was like the hot, the hot commodity. And I was so convinced, I, I saw this panel of people with diabetes and they were all talking about how amazing CGM was. And I never heard of it. And I was so convinced that I called up Dexcom from the hotel lobby, like after that session, and I like got the seven plus. And that was like, I feel like that was a turning point because then I had like a stream of continuous data to like run all these experiments on myself and like figure out what worked. And yeah, I've, been, I've now been wearing CGM for 70,000 hours. So... Yeah, if you're like an expert on something after 10,000 hours, like I've worn CGM for a long time. And, and some people have worn it much longer than I have, which is really cool. So, so those were like kind of the three turning points in, in the story. And then I worked at Close Concerns and Diatribe from uh, full-time after graduating college until last December, actually. And there I was a journalist, like focused only on diabetes. So I'd go to conferences, write up new data, my test out new products and speak to people with diabetes. We did a bunch of advocacy at FDA for like different products and different drugs and different devices. And then last fall, I started a graduate school to become a therapist. So I'm sort of learning all about mental health and like mental health in general, not just in diabetes, but I sort of want to merge those two skill sets in the future. And so... Yeah, I've been in graduate school since the fall, kind of learning how to be a therapist, which is like, I'm a, I'm a total beginner again, like, which has been awesome because uh, I love learning. And then uh, in January, I started part-time at Tidepool, sort of helping on Tidepool Loop, bring that to market. And so, yeah, I've got kind of a lot going on, but I, I would say diabetes, uh, it's like a big, it's a big part of my life because it's a big part of my career. In terms of my personal diabetes, I think it actually occupies a fairly small fraction of my life because over time I've like found a system that works for me such that I can like spend more time in range with less burden, which is kind of my metric for like the things that I am seeking always. So yeah, that's like a lot of verbal vomit, but that's sort of the arc of my story. <laughs> you mentioned a lot of stuff that we'll talk about later, but right now, can you talk more about the system that you've come up with that works for you? Yeah. It's basically what, what is summarized in Bright Spots and Landmines, which is, I think, a few different things. It's, um, so the book is focused on food, mindset, exercise, and sleep. And 
yeah, I eat fairly low carb. I eat like very little processed food and I use CGM to kind of see how I'm doing. And then I wear a closed loop system because that makes nighttime much easier with type one diabetes. And I think that combination of like low carb automated insulin delivery, C obviously CGM and, and then it's just a bunch of little things like sleep, like walking, finding like ways to stay in range during exercise, which is kind of a tangent, but we can talk about. Yeah. And so I, I think it's most of the stuff in Bright Spots and Landmines paired with the technology that, that really helps me. So for the closed loop that you're on, what, what closed loop system is that? So I wear the loop DIY system and uh, yeah, it's not an FDA cleared product. So it's code out there on the internet that some really brilliant uh, people with diabetes uh, figured out how to make. And I have an old Medtronic pump and I have this little white box called a Riley link. And there's an app on my iPhone that I can enter carbs in and bolus from my phone. And this is, I want to make it clear, like I'm not endorsing use of do-it-yourself closed loop. I'm not uh, recommending it. It's just what I use for my own diabetes. And one of the things that the Tidepool team is trying to do is make a proper commercial version of this app that would be supported, that would have customer support, that would work with in-warranty devices, and that would be FDA cleared, and it would be prescribed. And it would be prescribed, and you would download it from the app store, and you'd work with your healthcare provider, and it would be like very official. And, and it would be safe, because we want things to be safe. So... Yeah. So that's what I've been using and uh, it's awesome. <laughs> that does seem like it would be a little bit more legit than just DIY code from the internet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Uh, so let's go back to your diagnosis. Well, can you tell us that story? And do you have any family history? Did, you, did your family know any of the symptoms before? Yeah. Some history of type 2 diabetes in my family, some history of autoimmune stuff, like thyroid issues. No history of type one, a lot of mental health history in my family. We didn't know the symptoms. We did catch it pretty early. Like I was just going to typical symptoms of type one diabetes and went into the primary care physician and the glucose meter read high and went to the endo and was diagnosed. And I think I was actually put on NPH and, uh, and Humalog at the time. And then Lantus had just come out that year. So like that was the big thing when, when like Lantus was like the first like stable basal insulin. Yeah. And so I, I, I'm, it's funny, like I'm such a future focused person. Like it's just sort of how I operate that I don't have a lot of like childhood memories. And so like, I don't have like a graphic diagnosis story where I like remember sitting in the hospital and being told like, I don't know. My mom just always taught us to like keep moving forward. And I think that's how I've always operated. So yeah, I don't, I don't have like a, a perfect moment or story from that time. <laughs> you mentioned mental health and something we ask all of our guests is what does burnout mean to you? And if you've experienced burnout, what have you found that helps you manage or, or get out of it? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I, <sighs> Had I had more time today, I wanted to like look up the official definition of burnout in the literature because it does have a specific definition and it's different from diabetes distress and it's different from depression. So there, I think there are all, sometimes like distress and burnout, I think are used similarly or as synonyms. And they, I think they do mean different things in the literature, but I didn't have time to like read all of the literature today on those topics. So forgive me for, for not being a total geek. I think of burnout as like this sort of like wanting to give up and like being 
feeling like kind of maxed out and disillusioned on diabetes. And, and maybe there's some like hopelessness in there. And I think of distress as this, like a smaller version of that. And I've honestly, I've never really had like bad burnout or bad distress. And I, I, I tend to think of both of those as like occurring over a longer period of time. But what I have had is like, sometimes there are days with type one where type one diabetes like runs your life on that particular day. And that happened, that doesn't happen to me as often, but it's you wake up, your infusion set was like busted and you're at like 280 and then you put it in a new one and it's kinked. And so like, and you just, you feel crappy, you have no energy, you're angry. And those days I try to use as a reminder of how much diabetes can run your life and, and how like narrow the line is between like managing it okay, or even like where it's like taking up a small portion of your life and it like running your life. Like it's actually a really narrow line, like forgetting to change the pump uh, reservoir or using expired insulin. Like there's so many things that, that are just like, you have to get right every single day. And if you like skip just one, like diet, you're just off the rails. And so I think often healthcare providers don't appreciate that, like how much work it is and how many little tiny things you have to get right always and how just how fragile the balance of like keeping all the plates spinning is. So when I have days like that, there's a, a graphic. I wrote an article called uh, 42 Factors That Affect Blood Glucose. And we have referenced <laughs> that multiple times. <laughs> okay, nice. So, so Bright Spots and Landmines actually has 22 factors because it's, uh, I published like a couple of years before I updated it to 42 factors. But I try to remember that graphic in my head on those days because it's a good reminder of just how many things impact our blood sugars and diabetes. And you, not only do you not have control over every factor, but you have no idea what factors are in play like in any given moment. And you can't measure every factor. So even if you wanted to, you couldn't control them. So I sort of, um, I think sometimes there can be this wish to control everything. And if, if things are not coming out the way that they should be to be upset about it. And what I try to do is more like, I expect things to go wrong. And I try to accept when that happens and do something about it if I can, but not like blow up into feeling upset that I did everything right and my blood sugar was busted. That's actually going to happen just because of the tools we have, because of the way type 1 diabetes works, because we have a broken organ that isn't secreting hormone in seconds. And that often helps me like walk back from the guilt or frustration around it. Because I think like type 1 has this weird quality where like if you're a perfectionist or like in some ways that's a great quality to have to like manage this disease, which demands so much of you. On the other hand, it's also a quality that makes me really hard on myself when things don't go as I expect. And so remembering the 42 factors, remembering how much is out of my control, accepting that things will go wrong and I just sometimes have to deal with it helps me manage those days when type 1 diabetes feels like it's running my life. <laughs> and then also learning from my own data so that if there are commonalities and patterns that drive those events, trying to have fewer of that stuff happen. And that's sort of 
diabetes landmines, which is kind of one piece of the equation. So yeah. Do you have any advice for diabetics that are feeling burned out right now or in diabetes distress? Yeah. Well, one thing at diabetesdistress.org, you can actually take the diabetes distress scale, which is free. And I think the questions in there are really illuminating as a way of reflecting on like how you're feeling about it. I don't, I'm not aware of a diabetes burnout scale, but the diabetes distress scale is really interesting. I think it's only 17 questions and that's put together by the Behavioral Diabetes Institute and is a good resource. So a couple things. One, distress and burnout are normal. I think the stat is something like up to 40% of people with diabetes have distress at some point. It's a lot. So it's almost like job burnout. (laughs) But the thing about a job is you can quit a job. You can take a vacation. You can get a new job. You can switch your job within your company often. Not always, but we're stuck with type 1 diabetes. Like There's no vacations. There's no quitting. (laughs) Quitting will just put you in the hospital real quick. So of course, it's normal to feel distress. And I think feeling like it's normal can often take a lot of the feelings, the negative feelings about it and make them normal. And and that's really powerful. I think there's so many sources for support now. So listening to podcasts where people with type 1 diabetes talk to each other, talking to people, there's tons of diabetes Facebook groups. There's Beyond Type 1 has tons of resources. TCOID puts on great virtual conferences now, but um, there's lots of diabetes conferences. There's JDRF events. Um, I think like connection with other people who have diabetes to just say like, hey, I'm having a tough week. And to hear like, oh, wow, someone else in this group is also having a tough week can be really, really powerful. Some people have found the, the mindset chapter of Bright Spots and Landmines helpful for kind of thinking through distress. You can download the 42 Factors poster. That's free. I think it's diatribe.org slash 42 Factors poster. That can help on distress. I think there's also this element of feeling kind of overwhelmed at how many different things there are to work on. So breaking it down into like the smallest possible thing you can think of that would make it one inch better. So I just finished a class on family therapy too. And family therapy too covers some of the modern family therapies. And one that I love is called solution-focused brief therapy. And sort of baked into that name is the, the orientation, which is we focus on solutions, not on problems. And we try to make it brief. And so one of the techniques in solution-focused brief therapy is, let's say I'm a therapist treating a client named Adam. And I would say, hey, Adam, let's assume... So let's say I come in with diabetes distress. Adam's really diabetes distress. And uh, I'm the therapist. And I say, hey, Adam, let's assume that while you're asleep tonight, a miracle happens. And you wake up tomorrow morning and all of the problems around diabetes distress that you just talked about, those are solved. They were just solved by a miracle overnight. And you have no idea that this has happened. And so you wake up in the morning. What is the first sign that you would know that the miracle has happened? And so as the therapist, you work with the client and you like walk through the miracle. And like, and then what would you notice? Like, well, I'd, I'd wake up with lots of energy. And then what would you notice? Well, and I'd, I'd eat, I'd make myself a low carb breakfast because I'd have enough time because I woke up enough early. And so you really build out this miracle. Okay. So then, then there's like this really awesome hack, which is, okay, so let's say one is the worst you've felt on your diabetes distress and 10 is the miracle you've just described. 
where are you at like right now? And let's say I'm, I don't know, I'm at a three. I'm at a three out of 10. And then the therapist will, this is like the key moment. The therapist will be like, what would it take to get to a four? Just to go from three to four. We're not, 10 is the miracle. That's far away. And you're at a three right now. How do we get to a four? And often people come up with all kinds of stuff because you've just chunked it into something small and doable. And that to me is like, when feeling down, when feeling like overrun by diabetes, trying to chunk it down into something really doable is powerful. So that's like one hack that I just, I just happened to learn about it a couple of weekends ago that I like really love because it, you build out the miracle at the 10 and then you think about how would you get one number higher? And, th- and then there's another technique, which is in motivational interviewing, which is, these are called scaling questions. And someone would say, you know, on a scale of one to 10, like how ready are you to start taking control of t- managing your diabetes? And the person might say, I don't know, I'm a two out of 10. And the therapist might say, well, why aren't you a one? Which is like its own awesome hack because the idea in motivational interviewing is like, people have lots of reasons in favor of changing and people have lots of reasons not to change. And one of our instincts when people don't want to change or when people are, this is called ambivalence, right? Lots of reasons to change, lots of reasons not to change. And when people are ambivalent, have both reasons, if you give them a bunch of reasons to change, they will respond with a bunch of reasons not to change. And so you're actually, my instinct, if someone's having a hard time would be to like, give them all these like motivational tips and reasons they should take care of themselves. And if someone's ambivalent, that will push them further away from change typically. So the idea in motivational interviewing is have the person talk themselves into change. Your job is just to, they call it dancing versus wrestling. Your job is not to like wrestle the person into change. It is to know like waltz with them. So when you say like, Oh, I'm a two out of 10. And then the therapist would say, well, why aren't you a one? Then the person comes up with all these reasons why they're not a one. Like, oh, well, I'm actually a two because I reordered my supplies this morning and I just made an appointment with my endo for three months from now. And it's like, oh, wow, tell me more about that. And then the person is like already talking themselves into change. And so these are all just geeky therapist things, but I think some of them are really powerful to hear as a person with diabetes because you're like, oh, wow, even if I'm a two out of 10, I'm not a one. And so, yeah, I don't know. That that, that might be too much of a tangent, but... (laughs) It's actually a good segue into my question about that motivational interviewing technique because I see a lot of diabetics out there who know they should do something different, but then they don't have the motivation or the urgency to do that. So it sounds like they might be at the one. What would you say to those type one diabetics who are basically in the victim mentality of it? Hmm. Yeah. Well, again, I, it comes back to some stuff we were saying earlier, like it's normal to feel overwhelmed (laughs) by this disease, even in the time we're living in now, just not like, imagine you don't have diabetes. We're still all living in a global pandemic right now. Going to the grocery store is harder. (laughs) Everything in life is harder right now. And so add diabetes on top of it. It's so much for anyone. So I think normalizing that it is hard to manage this condition and, and also like this feeling that you are not alone is really powerful. So trying to connect to folks, there's no shame also in seeking help. 
And it could be from uh, an educator, it could be from an endo, it could be from a mental health professional. And, and that mental health professional may or may not have diabetes experience, like depending on... But all the stuff I just described, I think works in diabetes, at least in my opinion, but none of it is like diabetes specific. That stuff is used... Like motivational interviewing is... It, its original founding was in like alcohol abuse, where... But there are a lot of similarities, right? Like if someone has a challenges around drinking and they refuse to quit, how are you going to engage them? Let's say using substances is ruining their life, but they won't stop. That's how motivational interviewing was founded. <laughs> so I think that's really cool. There's like all these different toolkits that have been developed, say in mental health, that I think are really applicable in diabetes. Yeah, you're not alone. Trying to think of like the one tiniest thing, like if you have five minutes tomorrow, what is one five minute thing you could do? Maybe it's take a walk <laughs> after you eat. I think it's tempting to feel like if you're burned out and distressed, things are hopeless or you need some like monumental change. And most of the time, when I feel that way around anything, like my instinct now is to chunk it down. So what's the five, what, like, what can I do in five minutes? What can I do in 10 minutes? What can I do tomorrow morning first thing? That can help. And then, yeah, like I said, asking for help. How did you make that decision to pursue becoming a therapist? Yeah, I think it's just always kind of been in the back of my mind. I majored in marketing in college, which really is about human behavior and why people do things. And I think when I was a journalist in diabetes, like I was always super interested in that aspect of diabetes and, and my, the mindset chapter of Bright Spots and Landmines like, is by far my favorite. It's the favorite, my favorite one to write. It's my favorite one to talk about. And then as I was sort of thinking about it, I just interviewed a bunch of psychologists who work in diabetes that I really respect. And I was like, hey, what's, what's, your, what's been your experience? And is this something I should do? And all of them were like, yes, please, please join us. So there were other things too. Like when I go to a bookstore, like I read the psychology, I go to the psychology section, you know, it's like, it's the stuff that I'm interested in that I read in my free time. And so I was like, wow, this, and the other thing is like, I think I've, I'd always wanted to like kind of be a healthcare provider, but like going to med school feels like just ridiculous. And, and I'm, I'm more interested in like behavior and why people do things and working at a deeper level with people rather than 15 minutes, four times a year kind of thing. So yeah, I think, I think it made sense for a lot of reasons. Yeah. And it's been totally awesome. Yeah. I'm excited for you because that sounds like you're having a lot of fun. <laughs> it's really good. Yeah. How did you get involved with Diatribe to begin with? Yeah. And how did you I, learn about them? Yeah. It was honestly an internship posted uh, on my undergrad job board and I applied and I never obviously thought I would work in diabetes or maybe that's not obvious. I was just like, eh, I don't know. I don't know if I'm a writer, but working in diabetes for a summer like seems kind of cool. And I remember like I applied to other random internships. Oh, well, I don't know, I work at ESPN or just stuff that a college age teenager kind of person kind of does. And yeah, it was like a really magical fit and a blast for uh, the summer. And I was like, wow, this would be awesome to go do full time. And I think what was also really cool about it is, like I said, in 2010, like CGM was, it still wasn't hitting its stride. And like back then automated insulin delivery was not, it was really early. And so I felt like I got to follow 
the slope of technology right from where it was hitting its pivot point. Because like the really the the turning point in CGM was the JDRF CGM trial, which came out in like 2008. And that was the study that validated CGM. And then 2010 is when I kind of started in the field. So yeah, that was just kind of magical timing, I guess. I was so far behind the curve on CGM. I got it in 2015 after being diagnosed for, I think it was 20 years at that point. (laughs) Well, you know, what's crazy is most, I think the latest stats, most people with type 1 diabetes still are not on CGM. It's actually a minority. It might, it might be updated with Libre and Libre 2 and with the G6, like maybe half of people are, but yeah, it's still, it's still, I, it's so funny in the medical field, how long things take. They just take a long time to prove their value, get out there. Yeah. That's surprising to me because I volunteer at a day camp for type 1 diabetics and almost all of the kids have CGMs. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the other weird thing about when you and I are engaged in the community where if someone's going to a diabetes conference or going to a diabetes camp, they kind of, they're in it. You know what I mean? Like they are on CGM and, and it's the, the folks who aren't there that I think kind of get lost in the system or they just, they, a lot of people with type one, like they get care from their primary care physician. They don't see an endo, like that's very common. And so do primary care physicians know about CGM? Do they know how to prescribe it? Do they know how to interpret the data? So it's just crazy, the medical field. And I'm, I'm seeing this from the mental health side, just how long things take. As therapists, we watch videos of therapy sessions and a lot of them were like filmed in the 90s. <laughs> They're literally 30 years old. And it's just because it takes so long for people to make updated content. <laughs> With your marketing background, how would you suggest reaching out to all of those, those people who see their primary endos and maybe don't know about the CGMs? Yeah, it's tough. I don't know. I mean, the biggest reason people don't use CGM is cost. So I think it, it has to become cheaper and it has to not require a prescription. And I think all the companies want to get there. But to me, you should be sent home with CGM a diagnosis and you should be able to buy it on Amazon. <laughs> and it should be just available to you. And it's like crazy to me that you can buy blood glucose meters without a prescription and strips, but you can't they still, FDA has still not approved. And I'm not putting FDA on the saying like they should do more. The companies have to do the work to show you should be able to get CGM without a prescription. That to me would make a huge difference. And then it should be, it should be free. If you have type 1 diabetes, your insurance should cover a 100% CGM because the data are so clear on preventing severe hypo, on A1C benefit, on time and range. So they will save money if they just make it easier to get CGM. And then I think the technology still has to get a little bit better. Like there are folks who just have a bad experience with CGM. To me, the worst, one of the worst parts of CGM is, let's say you're new to using CGM, your worst experience with the product is when you first use it because day one has the worst accuracy. And that's like your first experience with it. So if you put on a CGM and like you kind of get a wonky sensor on day one, you're like, oh, forget it. This, this doesn't work. And then you've like lost someone. I think the day one part has to get better, has to get cheaper, has to get easier to use. Yeah. And then of course, we're now going to see the same curve with automated insulin delivery because there were closed loop systems. That's still going to have to grow in data and get 
the word out there more. And so, yeah, this stuff just takes so much time in the medical field. You make a good point though about blood glucose meters being available for anybody to buy them, but CGMs aren't. And that I never thought about that before, but that's a really good point. Yeah. And I think some of it is glucose meters have just been around a really long time. Like they're 30, 40, 50 years old at this point. The other thing that's weird is, so see, this is a geeky moment, so I won't go too far on this, but CGM used to be a class three device, like a PMA, and blood glucose meters are a class two, 510K. And it's only recently that CGM has now become downregulated. Like that happened first with the Dexcom G6 and then now with Freestyle Libre 2. So now CGM is a class two, 510K, which is like a lower risk category of device. And they did that for this whole interoperability world. But I'm hoping that like will pave the way for um, getting it to the point where it doesn't need a prescription, but not there yet, I guess. That would be nice. I did talk to somebody who works for Dexcom and she was saying that the G7, they want to get into Walgreens and basically have anybody be able to buy it. Yeah, that would be awesome. That was a a long tangent off of Diatribe. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) No, it was good. It was a good conversation. I wanted to know, what are some of your favorite memories about working with Diatribe? Yeah, a couple come to mind. So one thing I'm really proud of is I think we really helped. So folks might remember that Medicare used to not cover CGM. And the reason they said was it's not approved for insulin dosing. So we're not going to cover it. Because if you still have to use a glucose meter to dose insulin, we're not covering CGM. So one of the things that we did was we advocated at FDA to get them to approve CGM for insulin dosing. And so Dexcom submitted the G5. It was the first system. And they ran, there was this big study called Replace BG. And we, made, we got 10,000 people to sign a petition saying, FDA should approve CGM for insulin dosing, in part because it's much safer to dose insulin with a CGM versus on a single finger stick value. And people who wear CGM like kind of know this intuitively, like it's better to have a history and a trend arrow than just a single point in time for dosing your insulin. But at the time, this was a new thing. And so I'm, I'm really proud that we got all those signatures. We made speeches at the FDA and then like, they approved the G5. And then they approve Libre and then they approve G6 and Medicare covers CGM now, which is like so awesome. So that, that was one really fond memory. Publishing Bright Spots and Landmines is a really fond memory in part because I decided early on that I wanted it to be free because the goal was to get it to as many people as possible. And in fact, coming back to the point on CGM, like cost is a huge barrier for everything in diabetes. It's a free download and on Amazon, it's priced at cost. So Diatribe doesn't make any money when you buy a version of Bright Spots and Landmines on Amazon. And I don't make any money off of that. And so I'm really, really proud of that. It just feels like the right thing to do. And then, and then the third one I'll mention is just like the whole movement around like time and range and beyond A1C. Five years ago, that was nowhere. And I think we... We published like some of the first articles on the problems with A1C and why it's like such a misleading metric. We published some of the first articles on like setting goals for time and range. And I think we helped get some of these organizations together to publish guidelines on time and range to get it in the ADA standards of care. So yeah, those are, those are really fond memories too, because I think we wrote some like really awesome content at a time where that was still like a very new concept for people. Do you have any favorite articles that you work on? On those topics specifically or in, or in general? general. Ah, 
Yeah, I mean, any of the ones on like going beyond A1C, I think are really valuable. Uh, the first one we wrote was, it's just diatribe.org slash beyond A1C. I think it's a really awesome piece. Other articles. I mean, there are a couple that I've written that always uh, get people fired up. Like, like there's one called Why'd I Eat the Chips? that I think gets sent out like every July 4th because that was when it happened. And that always gets people fired up. There's sort of my, the excerpt from Bright Spots and Landmines on low carb. I can't remember the title of the article on diatribe. It's something like the, the, the best and worst food advice, diabetes food advice. And it's this, this dichotomy of like, eat whatever you want and take insulin for it. Versus like the way that I kind of describe eating in Bright Spots and Landmines. That one always uh, gets people maybe fired up for better or for worse, I guess. What are some examples of bright spots and landmines and diabetes that you've seen the most? Yeah, the low carb one is a big one in terms of a bright spot. The way I phrase it in the book is just, I try to eat less than 30 grams at one time. That framing is pretty intentional because people get into big debates over how many carbs per day. And I think, and that's, that's fine. But I think like what matters for time and range and blood sugars is like how many at one time, because that is the, that is the driver. I often describe diabetes as like you're driving a car and every meal is like, and you're trying to stay on the road and CGM is the windshield on the car. And every meal is like a turn of the steering wheel. Uh, and every insulin dose is a, is a turn of the steering wheel. And so like the more carbs you eat at one time, like the more you're just jerking the steering wheel and you're flying off road. And so bright spots are about saying like, when do I stay on the road? When I, when my car is on the road, what was I doing? How did I keep the car on the road? And ideally when I talked about like time and range with less burden, that's like cruise control. Like how do I put diabetes on cruise control? Like that's what I want. So low carb is one example of that for me. And then diabetes landmines are when does the car fly off the road, like into the ditch over there? And thinking about what causes that to happen and also how can I recover and get my car like back on the road quickly. And so the best example of that is over-treating lows with too much food. So you spike totally high. And one of the things I found for me with diabetes landmines is I tend to have the same patterns of landmines. Like I tend to make the same mistakes over and over. And so the beauty in that is at least I can come up with a strategy to kind of like avoid those or when they do happen, make them smaller. So what I do for lows, I mean, having lows on closed loop system is a little bit different because you've already, your insulin's already been suspended for a bit, but let's put that to the side for a second. I just know that if I am low and I go to the fridge and I just open it, I will eat way too much of whatever is around and I will go high. And that is unfortunate. <laughs> I think that's so, common for every diabetic. Yeah, it's totally common. Yeah, yeah. Or you open the pantry and whatever, like down the chocolate chips. So what, what to do about this? I found that I needed a simple rule. I have a low treatment. It's like my designated low treatment. And when I'm low, I eat that thing. And that's the rule. But yeah, Smarties are perfect. Yeah. And Smarties are a great example because they're quantity limited. So like, you know, one roll of Smarties raises you how much? Half a roll raises Half you? Half a roll is like 20 points maybe. And then it, then it comes right back down. <laughs> okay. So, so then what do you do? You just eat the other half of the roll? Yeah. Gotcha. Or, I, or I let my um, control IQ turn off the insulin. Got it. So you're on control IQ. Yeah. So 
that's perfect. And and mine is glucose tabs, but but Smarties are sort of glucose tabs in miniature form. And quantity limited, I'm not going to overeat tabs or I'm not going to overeat Smarties. Maybe some people will, but but like quantity limited, hard to overeat. And you know, I think of it like dosing carbs, just like I would dose insulin. So I dose carbs for low, I dose insulin for highs, and I know my dose. I know one, I know five grams raises me 20 points. And that, that's just the rule for me. And so that's my way of getting over that diabetes landmine. Like I have a strategy, I do the strategy. I don't always do the strategy, but if I do it like even 80% of the time, amazing. I'm so much better off than if I do it 0% of the time. Dosing for lows, I like that. Yeah, dosing carbs for lows. So figuring out your dose. And uh, so that's a really common landmine that I think a lot of people with type one have. A common, we talked about low carb, which has many different tangents that are described in the book. Filling half the plate with vegetables is like a good, easy to remember bright spot. If I do that, I'm more likely to be in range after a meal. That's a good bright spot. Low carb breakfast, I think is a really common one. And I talk about like making a chia pudding, making almond flour waffles, almond flour pancakes. Sometimes I just have nuts for breakfast, eggs, things like that. Low carb breakfast is important. I, I think it's the one meal to like really dial in low carb unless you're doing intermittent fasting, which is of course yet another separate topic because most people with type one are insulin resistant in the morning. And so you have this double whammy of most breakfasts are high in carbs and sugary and you're hormonally speaking, it's like the worst time to have like a big glucose load. And then if you're, we're all working from home. So like you eat this big glucose load and then you just like sit. <laughs> And then, and then your whole day is off to like a high blood sugar start. So it's like this triple whammy of stuff going on. And so like, I, I have like quite a section in there on eating low carb at breakfast, which I think is really helpful. And then I'll just, I'll hit one, one mindset, one that resonates with almost everyone with type one I've ever spoken to, which is this idea that your blood sugar data is data it is not a grade or judgment on how you're doing. It's not a greater judgment on you as a person and a human being. And so the idea is like, it's like a speedometer for your diabetes. Your CGM is, tells you how fast or slow you're going, but there's no value judgment on the data. And that's really important because when it feels like a test or a grade, the instinct that I have is to disengage from it. And that's like the complete opposite of what we want to do. So I view the data as awesome information to help me make decisions and figure out what's happening, but it's not a grade on my performance or a judgment on me as a person. And it's kind of like a pilot. I think of a pilot flying a plane. Let's say the plane is going off course. The pilot looks at the GPS or the speed of the plane is like, oh my gosh, the plane is a little off course. Does the pilot say like, I'm such a bad pilot. I'm a horrible pilot. I'm the worst pilot. Turns to his like co-pilot. Can you believe what a bad pilot I am? You know, goes on the intercom. I can't believe what a bad pilot I am today. No, the pilot like looks at how the plane is flying and like changes how it's flying. And I think that's what I try to do with CGM data, with blood glucose data. Think of it like you're the, I'm the pilot of my diabetes. I'm trying to like do the best I can and going to look at the data and make a decision, but I'm not going to judge myself as like a bad person for if the outcome is not what I expect. That's good advice. You mentioned earlier something about staying in range with exercise. Yeah. Can you talk more about that. Yeah. Staying in range during exercise. 
I, so let's, let's talk about like doing this without closed loop first. Cause I think closed loop makes it uh, different. I micro dose glucose tabs for exercise. That is how I deal with it. So I know for instance, cycling drops me one to two points per minute. So if I'm going to do a hour ride, that's like a 60 to a hundred point drop. So if I start at 200, I will come down to like between 140 and like 40. <laughs> so I know I need a little bit of buffer. So if I'm at a hundred now, and um, let's say I have no insulin on board and I'm going to go for an hour ride, I need like four or five or six tabs. And so the reason I use glucose tabs or Smarties or like anything fast acting is I don't have to plan ahead. So I can eat that or I can just put it in my mouth and sort of let the oral mucosa soak it up so that I can just have it like on the spot and I don't have to plan ahead like an hour ahead. What I would often do, sometimes you'll get this pattern where you like eat a sandwich. Let's say you eat a sandwich or something like 20 minutes before a bike ride. Like what happens is it just sits in your stomach and it, the glucose actually doesn't hit. So what happens is you, you eat the sandwich, you go low during the ride, and then you skyrocket once you get home because then the food is digesting. So it's a total mess because it's a timing problem. So either like if you're going to eat something slow carbish, it's got to be like way before exercise, like 40 minutes before, or I eat something fast acting right before and slash during. Like let's say I'm at 160 and going into a ride, I actually won't eat anything. And I'll, I'll sort of let myself kind of float down and then I'll eat tabs while I'm biking to kind of like stay in range the whole time. And then the, often what people are recommended to do is play with your basal rates, which I think is fine. But again, it's, you have to make the changes an hour before, which I just never plan that far ahead. So I don't view that as like a viable strategy for myself. And on closed loop, so you would set like a temporary target like in control IQ or in loop. But that's got to be like at least an hour before, because if you change basal rate and right now, nothing is going to happen for an hour, at least for me. Uh, and I think for most people. So I, I think the challenge with exercise is like getting the timing right. And then the other thing is, if you have insulin on board, exercise will accelerate that because of the way that exercise translocates the GLUT4 receptors. So it pulls the glucose into the cells more quickly like independently of insulin. And so if you have insulin on top of exercise, you get like a bonus drop in glucose. And so it's really common to like eat a meal and then having taken insulin for the meal and you've, so then the food sits in your stomach, you get the bonus drop from the extra insulin. So you go low and then you skyrocket after perhaps also you've eaten a bunch of stuff. So exercise is generally for me, like a timing problem. And just getting the timing right is is really important. I'll let you chew your glucose tab. <laughs> how do you see social media affecting how diabetics take care of themselves? I think it's kind of a mixed bag, personally. It's funny. I kind of stopped using social media probably eight months ago. I don't use it at all anymore. So I think let, we can talk about the pluses first, like community, easy access to other people with diabetes. I still meet tons of people with diabetes who've never met another person with diabetes, like in their life. And these are people in San Francisco. It's really common for someone with type one to never have talked to another person with diabetes about it. Like that's just really common. Okay, I have my glucose tab, so we'll come up. 
this this will allow people to know I actually have diabetes. Like I'm not just making all of this up. So <laughs> you never know with like people people lying on online these days. So it's like really common to never have met someone with diabetes. And so I think the beauty of social media is you can find your people. You can find a group of people with type one who cycle or people. So like beyond type one, JDRF, like there's all these amazing communities of people with diabetes. There's the looped Facebook group for people who use loop. There's just tons. And I think that's amazing because you may not, you know, especially if you live in a place where there aren't people with diabetes or people with type one that you know, most people with diabetes aren't going around and talking about their diabetes. So I, th- I think that's beautiful. The ability to connect with people online in a, in a powerful way, share tips, share tricks, things like that. One of the things that I think can be challenging is people will uh, only share when things are going well. So you get this like highlights reel effect. So if, if it's a really tough day, and all you're seeing is like people's 6.2 A1Cs and 100% time in range posted, I think that can be very triggering or you can feel like you are alone in struggling. And so I think like that's sort of the challenge is being able to like toggle between if you are struggling, finding people who can provide really good support versus just like, a bunch of like very basic advice, like, well, just try harder or tomorrow will be better. If you're someone with type one who is like serious burnout or clinical depression, that may not be the right thing that you need to hear in that moment. I think there's that challenge. There's also the challenge of medical advice that people were like, well, I dose for this meal in this way. And again, type one is so variable. People have like radically different insulin needs. And so On the one hand, it can be so beautiful to get like a perfect piece of advice. This is how we dose for pizza and it totally works for us and that helps you solve it. And then on the other hand, you can get totally bunk advice that's just not right for you. And I I think sometimes it can be hard to figure out where things fall in the social media world. The reason I tend not to use it anymore is because I found I was like always craving how many followers do I have? How many likes did that get? What are the metrics on the book? And I started to find myself tying my self-esteem or my value as a human being to metrics. And it felt like really gross and wrong to me. And because I'm such a competitive person and I'm such a perfectionist and I'm data-driven, I was like, I have to not be engaged in this for a while. And so... Yeah, that's why I'm not really on social media. I don't like self-promote my stuff. I don't share it. And I have not, I don't judge anyone who does. It's, it, I'm actually impressed by people who can use social media and stay mentally healthy. That's amazing. <laughs> I am not that good of a person. <laughs> so for me, because I get connection with other people with diabetes through work, and because I have sort of my own system, I feel like it's, it's not a place where I get a lot of support. And so I'm a little less engaged than I used to be on it. So yeah, I I think it's a mixed bag. But if you find support on social media, like my gosh, that's amazing. And if you find it's like not your people, there might be other ways you can find support. Yeah. I don't know if that's the answer you were expecting or looking for, but that's sort of my honest thoughts on it. That's a good point. And I have props to you for being off for eight months. (laughs) That's impressive. I use this app called Freedom. Oh, I have that. (laughs) Yeah, it's awesome. So that's, that's how I do it. And it, it really works. What advice do you have for the young diabetics out there? Ooh, 
get on closed loop if you can. If for only the reason to not wake up in the middle of the night and to wake up most mornings in range is like really powerful. So I think closed loop systems are awesome. And there's some like really great ones coming out. Like Omnipod Horizon is in its pivotal trial. So that's going to come out next year. Hopefully that tide pool, we're working hard to bring loop to market. Medtronic's coming out with the 780G, which will have automatic bolusing. Control IQ is already out, which is an awesome system. And I'm, I'm sure you've talked about it uh, on the podcast. So there's really great automated ways to manage diabetes. And I, I think that's fabulous. I think when I was young, I didn't appreciate like how important food is as like a tool for managing diabetes. And I think that is underutilized, or at least it was never communicated to me that the benefits of food choices on things that I would have cared about. So like, what did I care about as a teenager? Being good at basketball, <laughs> getting good grades because I was a geek. <laughs> What else? Like getting lots of sleep, playing video games. All of those things go better when my blood sugar is in range, all of them. And so I wish someone had connected diabetes benefits to things I cared about as a young person, because that would have connected the dots for me in a way that I don't think I would have appreciated. I do think for people who get on CGM, like right at diagnosis or who are young, it is really easy to feel upset at numbers that are out of range or to feel like you're trying really hard and the numbers aren't working. And so like, we, we just, I won't rehash all of that stuff I said about the numbers are not judgments. They're not grades. They're not good or bad. They are data to help you. And I think that's really, really important. And people aren't taught that enough. And also remembering like the 42 factors on days when like things don't go well. Remember how insanely complicated this disease is and the tools still aren't that good. Like they're great, but like, the fact that if I take a dose of insulin now, not even the car doesn't even move for like 20 to 30 minutes and it doesn't fully move for like an hour or 90 minutes. Can you imagine driving a car and if you turn the steering wheel, nothing happens for half an hour? That's what we're working with. We'd all die. <laughs> That's what we're working with. And I, I just, I think that is like crazy when you frame it in that way. Like how... And, and when, when I talk to people who know nothing about diabetes and you describe how you show them like a syringe and you show them like the difference between one unit and 10 units, they just like can't fathom how narrow that the edge is between managing well and ending up in the hospital. Like it's so narrow. And Pete, I just, even I forget it sometimes, just how narrow it is and what like what we're dealing with. So like, all of that comes back to self-compassion and kindness, living with this like, and there's this weird dichotomy in type one where it's like, you see all these people on social media or in the news who are like, blah, blah, blah is like, just climb Mount Everest or like, blah, 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 just ran across Canada. And, you know, like a pro cycling team, all with type one diabetes, like we're flooded with all of these amazing stories of perseverance. And, and at the same time, it is a really dangerous disease to live with. And so I think most of us, like this is a whole nother branch of therapy called dialectical behavior therapy, but the idea of holding two things that are opposite together, like you can do anything with diabetes, true. And it is a super dangerous disease to live with. Both of those things are true. And that can be like hard to wrap our heads around as humans. Cause like, we're not used to thinking how can two kind of opposite things both be true, but that, that is the case. 
that's just the case. And so I think, again, a young person with diabetes or newly diagnosed, like may not be told that. And I don't know how helpful that is, but I had this one girl and I'll, then I'll stop going on tangents. I, I did like a teen support group and she was, um, she was wearing the 670G. So like pump and sensor, and she wore Libre. So she had three devices on her body and she was feeling really upset about things not going that well. And, and it brought me back to this, this whole self-compassion thing, you know, and like just remembering what we're trying to deal with. And also in, in DBT, there's this assumption, like people are doing the best that they can. We are doing the best that we can. It may not be enough, but it is the best that I can do right now. And that's really powerful, I think. I love that. Yeah. I love all of that. (laughs) Do you have any projects that you're working on right now that you're super excited about? Um, trying to get through grad school. <laughs> That's a big one. How much longer um, do you have? I have one more year. Yeah. I mean, it, it's weird because actually the, the paper I'm writing right now is, um, so it's for family therapy and we had to go back to a time in childhood and imagine that you were the therapist and your family came into therapy at like a critical time. How would you write up a case on your family and how would you treat your own family as a therapist? So I chose the time when I was diagnosed with diabetes as like, cause my parents had just separated and were about to get divorced. And so like, it was a rough time for our family. And it's like really crazy to be like in it, but also looking down at your family and being like, huh, like what would I have done? So that's like quite a project. <laughs> and that's just one paper for one class. But all the assignments are kind of like that. And um so that is a big one. And then I'm helping Tidepool bring Loop to market. And so I've, I've been working to like help summarize the data from this big study that we're using on Loop to support the FDA submission. So that's been a really big project. And yeah, and then just trying to take care of myself during this like crazy shelter in place time. So I feel like that's a project that all of us have and continue to have. So yeah. Since you're not on any social media, if people want to get in touch with you, where can they find you online? <laughs> <laughs> they can email me. I, I do answer emails from people. Um, my email is just brightspots at diatribe.org. So that's uh, easy to remember. All the stuff that I've written is online and it's free. So, I mean, that's out there. Um, it's just Adam's Corner and Diatribe. It's just, you go to the Diatribe homepage and pick my column. The book is free. You can download that at brightspotsandlandmines.org or diatribe.org slash brightspots. Easy to remember. Yeah, I think that's easy. And then if you're interested in Loop, follow Tidepool and we'll pretty transparent as a nonprofit. So keep people up to date on on what's going on with it. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been great yeah. talking with you. Likewise. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. A question for the audience this week. What are your bright spots in landmines with your diabetes? Let us know in the comments or by sending an email. That is it for this episode of This is Type 1. Thank you so much to Adam Brown for coming on as a guest to the show. You can get Adam's book, Bright Spots and Landmines, by visiting brightspotsandlandmines.com. And if you want to get in touch with Adam, you can email him at brightspots at diatribe.org. And we'll link all of this in the show notes. And you can find the show notes at inspiredforward.com slash episode 55. That's the number 55. And if you have an idea for an upcoming episode, please leave us a comment or send an email. You can get straight to our podcast page by going to thisistype1.com. Our music is by Joseph McDade. This is the perfect time to learn how to manage your mind. You're stressed, burned out, overwhelmed. 
want some help getting back on track and honoring your commitments to yourself, sign up for accountability coaching at inspiredforward.com slash coaching. I'm on all social media as at inspiredforward and our email is colleen at inspiredforward.com. Jesse's on Instagram as at JJ underscore crystal K-A-T. Please feel free to send her questions or comments you have about type one or about the show. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends, family, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts since that really helps other people find us. And be sure to listen next week when we talk about working in a corporate setting with type one diabetes, especially now when we're all working from home. Remember, you control your diabetes. It doesn't control you. Hey, if you like what you're listening to on this podcast, you have to join us in the Half Dead Pancreas Club. It's my private community where you'll connect face-to-face with other people with type 1 diabetes, get personalized emotional support, and learn how to handle anything T1D throws at you. Join us over at inspiredforward.com community. I can't wait to see you there.